In tonight's study, then, we're going to be looking at a group of individuals who I've called Paul's people. Paul's people. Because they played a significant part in Paul's life. And the first two are a couple. And they are Priscilla and Aquila. And the title that I use to describe them is Equally Yoked. Equally Yoked. So if you'd like to turn to Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 18, that will be the main source of our information about this couple. But I'll also be referring to Romans 16, verses 3 to 5, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19, and 2 Timothy 4, verse 19. But Acts 18 is the main chapter where you want to be. If ever there was a couple who exemplified togetherness in both their marriage and their work for God, it was these two. It was Priscilla and Aquila. They seemed to have lived together harmoniously and to have complemented each other perfectly. Even their names rhyme. Priscilla and Aquila. Ray and Sheila. No, it doesn't quite work, does it? The ups and downs of their married life don't seem to have affected their unity and devotion to one another. I'm sure they did have their disagreements and we'll see what some of them might possibly have been as we go along. But that didn't affect their devotion to one another. Now interestingly and unusually, Priscilla is always named first. It's always Priscilla and Aquila. It's never Aquila and Priscilla. Possibly this was because she was a Roman lady of higher rank than her husband. Or it could have been that she was the more prominent of the two in the church. We don't really know what the reason for that is. Now we don't know anything at all about Priscilla's background but we do know something about Aquila and you can see what we know there from chapter 18 and verse 2. He was a Jew, that's the first thing to say, and he came from Pontus and Pontus was a town on the northern Black Sea coast of Asia Minor, what we call Turkey today. He could have married Priscilla in Pontus or it may be that he met her after he migrated to Rome. Now, they both, Priscilla and Aquila, probably became Christians while they were in Rome. You see, we know from the writings of Suetonius, who was one of the great uh, Roman historians, we know from his documents that the gospel was being preached there at this time in Rome. Because... He records that the preaching of the gospel caused prolonged disturbances in the Jewish community. In studies one and two, particularly study two that we did in November, we saw the the impact that, uh, or the uproar there was often among the Jewish people when Paul went to the synagogue and started saying that Jesus was the Christ. Very much split those synagogues down the middle where we know that there was trouble in Rome. The gospel caused trouble. The gospel 
divided. And it got so bad that Emperor Claudius, if you look in verse 2, Emperor Claudius got so fed up with it going on in his capital city that he expelled all the Jews in Rome. So all Jews were thrown out of Rome because of the disturbances and the fracas that the gospel was causing in that city. And this, of course, included Priscilla and Aquila because Aquila was certainly a Jew. We don't know about uh, Priscilla. Well, this couple, they must have been devastated, don't you think? Devastated to have to leave their home in Rome and to have to leave the business that they would have undoubtedly established. It was their source of income. And I imagine them having discussions about where they were going to go. Perhaps this caused a difference of opinion between them. I don't know. But anyway, they decided to get out of Italy completely. And they made their home in Achaia. Now, Achaia is southern Greece. And specifically, they went and set up home and business in Corinth. So they arrive in Corinth, they are homeless and they are destitute, having been thrown out of Rome. Now, one of the reasons they went to Corinth was because in those days it was, could be said to be the most important city in the whole of Greece. Yes, I know Athens was the capital, but Corinth was a much more important city than Athens in many ways. In Athens, you talked a lot. You philosophised. You discussed the issues of the day. In other words, those who have got nothing better to do sat around and talked. In Corinth, it was a get stuck in there, get in the business sort of place. And it had become the commercial centre of Greece. And that's probably what attracted Priscilla and Aquila as they were business people. Well, that was the upside of Corinth. The downside of Corinth was that it was renowned. And it was renowned for its sexual immorality. And this was largely due to the worship of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Corinth had a massive temple to Aphrodite and the worship of Aphrodite and all those who came from all over the empire to join in that worship went on in Corinth. It flourished there. So is it any wonder that when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, to the Corinthians years later, sexual immorality was a subject which was high on his agenda. Moving on to verse 3, we see that Aquila was a tent maker by trade. And no doubt Priscilla pitched in to help in the running of the business. Think about it, come on. (laughs) It was hard work, tent making. It was hard work sewing the coarse camel hair or goat hair that tents were made of and it was not that profitable so you had to uh, work really hard to make a growing business out of it. What do they do with these tents? I mean there was none of these sort of superstore camping superstores in those days that they they could set up. No they probably sold their tents to the Roman army 
because the Roman army needed tents to house their troops, which were always on the move. So one day, here they are, verse, end of verse 2, they're working away when a man stops to talk to them. And Priscilla and Aquila learn that this visitor to the city was actually a tent maker himself, just like them. He had the same profession. They'd been even more delighted to find out that he was also a Jew who, like them, had become a believer. And imagine their reaction to this man's account of the amazing circumstances of his conversion on the road to Damascus. They invited Paul to stay with them and in return he offered to work alongside them, helping to make the tents. You can see that in verse 3. Imagine the discussions that must have taken place between these three as they worked together and as they relaxed together. Priscilla and Aquila must have learned so much about God from Paul during that time of tent making with the result that their faith would have grown enormously, I'm sure. Not only were the three of them united in their profession of tent making, but also in their profession of faith in Christ Jesus. And I imagine that Priscilla and Aquila went with Paul to the synagogue every Sabbath. And I'm sure they sat there fascinated, listening intently as he, and I quote from verse 4, reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And I'm sure that the result of listening to Paul doing this was that their understanding of the gospel grew and grew all the time. And then in verse 5, we find that Paul's companions, Silas and Timothy, rock up. They've come down from Macedonia. And presumably, Priscilla and Aquila put them up as well. Verse 5 suggests that Priscilla and Aquila must have had a conversation and agreed that Paul should now spend his time concentrating on his preaching not on his tent making, while they continued to support them, to support all of them, the other two as well, I guess, through their tent making and their hospitality. And what was the result of this tremendous sacrifice by Priscilla and Aquila? The result was that many came to faith in Christ in Corinth and in nearby Concrea, which was the port which served the city of Corinth. And these people included, if you look in verse 7 and 8, Titius Justus, who was also known as Gaius, in whose house Paul held meetings, and who also provided Paul with hospitality. Then there was Crispus, very important uh, conversion, this one, because he was the ruler of the synagogue, along with his family. And this would have serious consequences, which we'll see in a moment. And then there was, if you look over at 1 Corinthians and uh, chapter 1, you'll see mention of Chloe, 
Stephanus and his family, Fortunatus and Achaicus. And then, of course, there's Phoebe, who we'll be coming back to later, Tertius, Quartus, and Erastus, who Romans 16 tells us was, quote, the city's director of public works. So you can see that there were some quite high-flying people in Corinth who came to faith during that time, as well as people who were tent makers and other occupations like themselves. And in fact, if you look at verse 11 of chapter 18, it tells us that Paul stayed in Corinth for 18 months, and I quote, teaching them the word of God. Teaching them the word of God. But just go back to verse 6 for a moment. We saw that Crispus, the synagogue leader, was one of those who became a Christian during this time that Paul was there. But it led to Paul experiencing abusive opposition from some Jews in the city, presumably led by Sosthenes. Sosthenes was the successor to Crispus. And eventually, looking down at verses 12 through to 17, there was a court case brought by these Jews against Paul. And they virtually accused Paul of treason. They reckoned he was preaching against the emperor because he was preaching another lord, of course, in Jesus Christ. Treason for preaching the gospel. Now, I imagine Priscilla and Aquila would have supported Paul through what must have been an extremely stressful time. But in the end, the case was summarily dismissed by Gallio, who was the proconsul. And that was a landmark ruling because what it meant was that from then on the gospel could be preached freely and people were no longer danger, in danger of arrest for preaching the good news. I just imagine that Priscilla and Aquila must have been really thrilled with this verdict and also with all that God was doing in Corinth. They come across to me, I don't know about you, as an amazingly staunch and effective backroom team. They were clearly not upfront people, but without them, I venture to suggest that Paul would not have been able to carry on his ministry in Corinth with such success. Now, Priscilla and Aquila must have realised that one day Paul was going to leave Corinth. His ministry was such they knew he wouldn't be there forever. So it was no surprise when we get to verse 18 that when Paul announced that he was leaving and he was returning to Syria. But they were in for a shock. And the shock was this. Paul wanted them to go with him. Paul wanted them to leave Corinth and go with him on his journey to Syria. Now how unsettling must that have been? Here they were, now established in Corinth, probably been there about two years by now, established a home, established their business, they put down roots, they must have been feeling comfortable at last after all the upheaval that they'd experienced in the expulsion from Rome. 
And here was Paul asking them to leave it all behind. And for what? What did the future hold? It was that Rome experience all over again. Except that, of course, this time it was their decision whether to leave. Now, I wonder, did they argue about it, whether they should or shouldn't go? Did they agonise about it for hours, for days, for weeks? We don't know. Or did they respond immediately to the call? All we know is that they did go with Paul as he asked them to. And they may even, I wouldn't have been surprised, funded his trip. And of course, what that raises for us is this whole thing about comfort zone, isn't it? Paul was asking Priscilla and Aquila to move out of their comfort zone again. And rather than cling on to the safety of what they knew, they clearly reveled in the excitement of what God had in store for them in this new opportunity. I wonder how many of us can say that we revel when we get that situation from God rather than, well, actually, we'd rather stay in this comfort zone. It's quite challenging to think about, isn't it? Well, on their way by boat to Syria from Cancrea, they presumably would have embarked at, Paul and Priscilla and Aquila stopped off at the port of Ephesus in Asia Minor, in Turkey. And there, Paul being Paul, he didn't waste his time. This might have been a stopover on his way back to Syria, but he wasn't going to waste the opportunity. And off to the synagogue he went and engaged the people in discussion, talking about Jesus. Remember, this was the strategy he always adopted that we identified in study two. He went to the synagogue and the people were very responsive. So much so, if you look at verses 19 and 20, they wanted him to stay longer. Now I wonder, was this why Paul decided to leave Priscilla and Aquila there in Ephesus so that they could follow up on what he'd begun? If so, to me, that is a glowing testimonial to Paul's confidence in this couple, that they were up to this job of discipling and nurturing these new Christians in Ephesus. I don't know whether this marked a change of plan, whether originally Paul intended to take them right back to Antioch, his, um, his home-based church, or whether God had already revealed to him that something was going to happen in Ephesus and that he was to leave Priscilla and Aquila there. We're not actually told. But the fact of the matter is that that's what happened. Priscilla and Aquila stayed on in Ephesus. This remarkable couple, they're so submitted and committed to God's will that they're quite prepared to stay in Ephesus, where they knew nobody, where they got nothing no roots, and they had to start all over again. Even though this might not be what they thought was going to happen when they left Corinth. They probably thought they were going all the way to Syria with Paul. They were wonderfully open to God, were they not, and what God wanted in their lives. 
And again, I think that's a tremendous challenge to all of us. It certainly is to me. I wonder how they must have felt when they had to say goodbye to Paul. They'd never been without him. He was always there to fall back on, to ask those difficult questions. Paul, what should we do about this? We were asked this question, Paul, what should we say? And so on. He's not there anymore. It's like the prop has been kicked out from under their world and they've got to handle it. They've got to cope. This was a massive challenge that they were facing in Ephesus. Imagine their emotions then, when I'm sure they stood on the quay and they watched his boat disappearing over the horizon. Yes, Paul did promise to return, if you look at verse 21, if that was God's will, and indeed he did. And you can see all what happened in chapter 19 when he came back to Ephesus. But Priscilla and Aquila weren't to know that. All they knew was that for the foreseeable future, the responsibility of nurturing these new believers in Ephesus now lay squarely on their shoulders. And where was the obvious place for these new Christians to meet? Well, of course, it was in the home of Priscilla and Aquila. Where else? Now, these believers may have included the following people. Verse 20, Trophimus and Tychicus, who's also mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6. Tychicus would become Paul's personal representative in the years to come, and you'll be hearing more about him later. And then there's Onesiphorus, who Paul mentions in his second letter to Timothy, chapter 4. Now we can see, now we can see the value of that time spent with Paul in Corinth. Priscilla and Aquila would need to draw on all that teaching and wisdom that they'd received. And then somebody arrives in Ephesus. His name is Apollos. And Apollos was a Jew who came from Alexandria in Egypt where there was a very large Jewish community. And you can see in verse 24, he arrives in Ephesus. Now Apollos is thoroughly grounded in the Jewish scriptures. In other words, he knows his Old Testament back to front. Very knowledgeable, very erudite, verse 24 tells us. Verse 26 also tells us about Apollos, that he was a naturally gifted public speaker. And that was shown when he visited the city's synagogue and spoke there, and the word used is boldly. He spoke there boldly. But verse 25 tells us something insignificant about Apollos. And I quote, He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervour and taught about Jesus accurately. But there was a problem. And it's this, he knew only the baptism of John. Now, Priscilla and Aquila heard about Apollos and presumably went to listen to him. Was it a coincidence, I wonder, that Apollos should arrive in Ephesus just when Priscilla and Aquila were there? Well, they soon realised that here was a man with great potential 
for the work of God, but clearly he only knew part of the truth. And Priscilla and Aquila were ideally suited to deal with this situation. So they took him home. Presumably they gave him meals. They gave him hospitality. They showed him friendship. And they gently schooled him in the fullness of the Christian faith. Verse 26 tells us. And to his great credit, Apollos, who could have got quite huffy about all this, because after all, he was some scholar and he was some speaker. And who were Priscilla and Aquila, actually, you know, to be telling him things? But he was so humble, he was quite happy to receive teaching from Priscilla and Aquila, where he could have reacted arrogantly and ignored them. And that challenge comes to each one of us, you know. However erudite and knowledgeable we may think we are, are we still open? Are we still teachable? Well, Priscilla and Aquila did such an excellent job with Apollos that when he wanted to go and preach in Achaia, you remember that's the southern area of Greece, where, including where Corinth was, the believers in Ephesus had no hesitation in encouraging him to do it. Because they'd worked so well with Apollos, he'd now got hold of the full truth of the gospel. And the believers and everybody in the church knew it. So when he wanted to go and, and evangelise, they said, yeah, right on, man, you go. We're behind you. They even took the trouble, verse 27 tells us, to write a letter of introduction to the disciples there so that when he arrived, he could show them this letter that the Christians in Ephesus had written about him. And his skills as an orator and as a debater were mightily used by God, as he, quote from verse 28, vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Indeed he was, and I quote from verse 27, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. And I just think Apollos and all that he was able to do is a wonderful testimony to the behind-the-scenes work of Priscilla and Aquila. And for me, Apollos is the author of the epistle to the Hebrews. But we could argue about that for a while. Well, finally, for some reason that we're not told, Priscilla and Aquila left Ephesus and went back to Rome. So their travels had gone full circle from Rome to Corinth to Ephesus and now back to Rome because of all the furore that had happened years before now died down. And when Paul wrote his letter to the believers in Rome in 57 AD, Priscilla and Aquila were at the top of his greetings list, which just shows how important they'd become to him. Romans 16, 3, he calls them, and I quote, fellow workers, fellow workers in Christ Jesus. And I think when they read that, or they heard the letter read out in the church, it's probably more likely, that would have really warmed their hearts, don't you think? That Paul should hold them in such high regard, even though they probably never ever preached a sermon in their life. They were still showing. 
their characteristic hospitality by allowing the believers to meet in their house. You can see that again in Romans 16, verse 5. But intriguingly, in verse 4 of Romans 16, Paul mentions something else that he wanted everyone to know about Priscilla and Aquila. And it's this, and I quote, They risked their lives for me. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, he goes on, but the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Isn't that a fascinating statement about Priscilla and Aquila? And it has me asking, where? Where did they risk their lives? Was it in Corinth? Was it in Ephesus? Was it somewhere else? Nor did he mention in what way this backroom team were actually prepared to put their lives on the line when necessary. So tantalising, they were left wondering what actually they did to merit that statement. Well, it seems that Priscilla and Aquila left Rome yet again. This is move number four, in case you're not counting. Rome to Corinth to Ephesus to Rome and now back to Ephesus to support Timothy. I wonder if this was in response to a personal request from Paul, which he made to them when they visited him, as they surely would during his time under house arrest in Rome. You remember from about the year 59-60, that's where he was, through to 62. And in his second letter to Timothy, who was now pastoring the church in Ephesus, Paul sends his greetings to Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, 2 Timothy 4, verse 19. So let's draw these threads to a conclusion about Priscilla and Aquila. They remain an example of the effectiveness for God of people who are devoted to him. Nothing seemed to be too much trouble for them in the work of God. They are prepared to go where God sent them, They were prepared to offer hospitality both to individuals and church groups and they were prepared to sensitively mentor believers. Every church needs people like Priscilla and Aquila. Mature, solid, modest, dependable stalwarts. Backroom people who I see supporting and praying for others People who work tirelessly for the sake of the gospel. And it's a challenge to think, isn't it, how we measure up to the standard set by Priscilla and Aquila. Let's move on to the second part of our study this evening. And we're going to look at the lives of Philemon and Onesimus. Philemon and Onesimus. So if you'd like to turn uh, turn to Philemon, the letter to Philemon, which is at the end of the list of Paul's letters. When I start next time on the actual main themes that I've pulled out of Paul's teaching, the epistle to Philemon doesn't feature anywhere. So I think it's good that we look at this epistle as part of the letters that Paul wrote. Whether The recipient is called Philemon or Philemon, I really don't know. Philemon sounds much more posh. 
could be shortened to Phil. Phil and Paul had uh, an exchange. Uh, but I'll have to call him Philemon because that's how I was brought up saying it and I'll slip back into it anyway. So Philemon, uh, there's 22 verses in there that we're going to be looking through together. But before we do, let's consider for a moment Onesimus. Onesimus was a fugitive. He'd stolen a bag of money from Philemon, his master. This man is a slave. He was a slave in Philemon's household. And he was fleeing from a life of servitude and bondage, which was the lot of the slave in those days. And as he ran, he knew. He knew the range of awful punishments which awaited him if he was caught and returned to his master. He could, for example, be crucified. Runaway slaves could be crucified. Slaves were regarded as possessions, even as tools. Slaves had no rights at all. And the least he could expect was to have the letter F, standing for fugitivus, which in Latin means runaway, the letter F, branded with a red hot iron onto his forehead. That was the least of the punishments he could expect if he was caught. So therefore it's no surprise, is it, that he desperately needed a place to hide where he could easily lose himself among the populace. And the obvious place was, of course, Rome. But the trouble is, Rome was a long, long, long way from Colossae. Colossae was another of these places in Asia Minor, in Turkey, where he lived. But eventually he did make it to Rome, no doubt using some of the money that he'd stolen to get there. And then one day, something happened which would change Onesimus' life forever. He met the Apostle Paul somewhere in the city. Now the circumstances of this meeting were not told, but the outcome we are told about. The outcome is of this meeting between Paul and fugitive slave Onesimus is that Paul brought him to repentance and faith in Christ. And in verse 10 of this letter, we'll see that Onesimus became a believer. Paul describes it in this way, and I quote, He became my son. He became my son. And Paul took Onesimus under his wing, such that, read in verse 11, that he became very And the word used is useful. He became very useful to Paul. We'll come back to that in a minute. So much so that we uh, realise from verse 13 that Paul didn't want to send him back to Philemon at all. 
Onesimus, you see, had become more than useful, verse 12 tells us, he had grown very dear to Paul's heart too. But Paul knew he was obliged. Paul knew he was obliged to send Onesimus back to Philemon. But Paul decided to ask Philemon to return Onesimus to him in Rome so Onesimus could continue to be of use to him. Well, we can only imagine Onesimus' reaction when he heard of Paul's decision to send him back to Philemon. I'm sure Paul had locked the door before he told him. It must have been a heartbreaking conversation, don't you think? With the words, don't send me back, please, and you've got to go, occurring quite a lot in that conversation, I would imagine. The thought, the thought of having to go back, having to face his master Philemon, having to take his punishment. He could probably feel the branding iron on his forehead. Must have caused him great and understandable distress. Probably felt like running away again. But Paul must have persuaded Onesimus that now he was a believer, going back to Colossae was the right thing to do. It was the right thing to do. And to calm his trepidation, Paul decided to write a letter to Philemon. A letter pleading Onesimus' case and explaining the great change that had taken place in this runaway slave since he'd come to faith in Christ. Well, I imagine that Onesimus must have been greatly comforted by this and he agrees to go back to Colossae. But Paul wouldn't be sending him back to face the music on his own. Whether he thought Onesimus might, in the end, decide he wasn't going to Colossae, no matter about the letter that Paul had written, I don't know. But Tychicus was going with him. We've already mentioned Tychicus and we'll mention him again. And with him, Tychicus was not only going to be taking the letter to Philemon, which I would imagine Paul would have been entrusted to him rather than to Onesimus, but I'm guessing. But also taking the letter to the Colossians, which we have in our Bibles, in which Paul tackled issues that Epaphras, who you'll hear about again in the second and the third part, had informed him about. And in the synopsis of letters, when you're looking at Colossians, you'll see that that's all laid out for you there. Well, when they got to Colossae, I can't imagine Tychicus would have left Onesimus to face the music on his own. So for me, it's likely that Tychicus went with Onesimus to Philemon's house. So now we know a bit about Onesimus, what do we know about Philemon? Well, We know that he was a wealthy Greek landowner. 
We know, because it's implied in verse 19 of the letter, that he'd become a believer through Paul's preaching. And we know that the Colossian church probably met in his home. You can see that in verses 1 and 2. Now this letter, to me, is fascinating. It often gets overlooked because, as I say, it doesn't contain great theological teaching that the other letters do. But I think it's a shame because just the way it's constructed, the way it's done. Paul took a lot of care over this letter in an attempt to ensure that the result would be that Philemon would willingly accept Onesimus back. Now just think, if you had to write such a letter in that situation, what would you say? How would you say it? Well, Paul writes it very tactfully and he writes it in a light-hearted manner. And right at the start, there is something that you don't see at the start of any other of his letters. Or rather, what you don't see. He doesn't identify himself as an apostle. It's the only letter that he doesn't use that. As we'll see next time, his apostleship was very, very important to Paul. But you see, he wasn't pulling spiritual rank, that's why, over Philemon. He was writing as one friend to another. He addresses Philemon as, and I quote from verse 1, our dear friend and fellow worker. And included in his greetings in verse 2 are a lady called Aphia, who was presumably Philemon's wife, and Archippus, who was probably his son, and the church as a whole. Archippus we'll mention later. You see, this letter was in essence a personal appeal from Paul to Philemon. And in his appeal on behalf of Onesimus, Paul followed the method prescribed by ancient Greek and Roman teachers. This is how to write, this is the framework, they said, for writing this kind of letter. You start off, after your greetings, by building rapport with the person you're writing to. And that's what verses 4 to 10 are doing, as we'll see. Then you persuade the mind. And that's what's happening in verses 11 to 19. And thirdly, you then move the emotions. And that's what's happening in verses 20 to 21. So you build rapport, then you move on to persuade the mind, and then you move on to move the emotions. You'll notice, as we go through the letter, Paul doesn't even mention Onesimus until the end of the rapport section. Verse 10. And the appeal doesn't come until verse 17 towards the end of the mind, persuading the mind section. So, you need to imagine the scene. 
Here's Onesimus, perhaps with Tychicus standing by. Philemon, sitting in all his pomp and splendour. I imagine Onesimus is probably flat on his face most of the time, hardly daring to look up at Philemon. Or perhaps he's sneaking a look to see what effect Paul's letter's having on his master. Well, Philemon's heart must have been warmed as he read what Paul had written about him personally in verses 4 to 7, where in verse 5 he commended Philemon for his faith in Jesus and his love for the believers. And how, in verse 7, hearing about this had brought Paul, and I quote, great joy and encouragement. Not only was Philemon a man of faith, and of love, but he'd opened his house, which had become a place of refreshment for the believers that Paul refers to in verse 7. Philemon must have been impressed by Paul's humility as he went on to explain that he was not writing with the authority of an apostle and telling Philemon what to do, but rather he was appealing to him, and I quote from verse 9, on the basis of love. On the basis of love. Not on the basis of my authority as an apostle. The love that Philemon had for God and the love that Philemon had for Paul. And it's at this point that Paul introduced the name of Onesimus, saying, verse 10, and I quote, I appeal to you, For my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Now the word Onesimus actually means profitable or useful. That's what the word Onesimus actually means. Profitable or useful. And now Paul makes a play on the word Onesimus. Useful which Philemon would have appreciated, being a man of learning. Paul wrote that Onesimus was formerly, and I quote, useless to Philemon, but such a great change had taken place in this slave that he had now, and I quote from verse 11, become useful, both to you and to me, he says. In other words, he was no longer just Onesimus by name, Now he had become Onesimus by nature. Philemon must have been intrigued to read about such a transformation in his slave. He was probably taken aback as Paul went on to explain how Onesimus had become so useful and dear to him that he wanted to keep him. Such a description may not have fitted the Onesimus that Philemon remembered when he was in his service. Philemon may well have been wondering why Paul sent Onesimus back to him at all, considering how useful his slave had become to him. But as he reads on, Philemon finds that Paul's answered that point. He didn't want to do this without Philemon's consent. Paul explained that he was returning Onesimus to him so that Philemon could come to a decision that would be, and the word that Paul uses is, and I quote, spontaneous. Philemon's decision might be 
spontaneous about what to do with his slave and not have his hand forced is the word used through verses 12 to 14. Not have his hand forced by Paul. Now Philemon must have found the next part of Paul's letter difficult to handle. Because you see, Paul was asking him to go beyond forgiveness. To go beyond forgiveness and accept Onesimus back. Accept Onesimus back. But accept Onesimus back, not as the runaway heathen slave that he once was, but as, and I quote, the dear brother. Look at verses 15 to 16. The dear brother in Christ that he had now become. Albeit, he was still Philemon's slave to do with as he pleased. Paul wasn't denying that. He was just saying, I want you to be aware of the transformation that's happened in this man's life. Onesimus had come back, but he'd come back different. Paul appealed directly to the partnership in Christ that existed between the two of them personally. And he asked Philemon to welcome Onesimus in just the same way as he would welcome Paul himself. Verse 17. Not to welcome him as a slave, although he was his slave, but not to welcome him as a slave, but to welcome him as a dear brother in Christ. We think of Galatians 3, 26 to 28, don't we? There's no free and there's no slave. There's no male, there's no female. We're all one in Christ. Philemon would have read that because that's in Galatians and that was the first letter Paul ever wrote, if you remember. But it must have been hard for Philemon to even contemplate doing what Paul was asking of him. Namely, to accept that he and his slave were brothers in God's family, verse 16, and equals in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.28. Philemon must have realised the depth of Paul's affection for this runaway slave when he read the next part of the letter. And here, Paul gave Philemon a personal guarantee that he would reimburse him for any inconvenience or financial loss that he'd suffered due to the actions of Onesimus. Verse 18. And to emphasise this point, Paul had taken the pen from his scribe, who'd written the letter at his dictation back in Rome, And he had written the words, verse 19, and I quote, I will pay it back. He'd written those words himself, probably in large letters and underlined. I will pay it back. Paul then gently reminded Philemon of something that probably brought a lump to his throat and tears to his eyes. Verse 19, and I quote, Not to mention that you owe me your very self. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. And as he read these words, Philemon must have recalled the time when Paul had tenderly and lovingly brought him 
to Christ and then gone on to weigh what Paul owed him due to the wrong done by Onesimus against the debt of gratitude he owed Paul for showing him the way of salvation. So when Philemon read Paul's next words in verse 20 and I quote, I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. As he read those words, Philemon would have known exactly what Paul was asking him to do. Namely, to repay that debt of gratitude by forgiving Onesimus, by being reconciled to his slave and by accepting Onesimus, his slave, as a brother in Christ. And Paul went on to tell Philemon that she had every confidence in him to do as he'd requested, quoting from verse 21, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And that he hoped to be able to come and stay with Philemon soon. Verse 22. Well, Scripture doesn't tell us what happened to Onesimus. Annoying, isn't it? But it seems more than likely that Philemon would have been swayed by such a powerful letter from his friend and allowed Onesimus to return to Paul. But what is sure is this. This event would surely have had an enormous impact on the church in Colossae. Because you see, this was Galatians 3.28 in action. An enormous impact that Philemon had accepted Onesimus back, that he'd forgiven him and been reconciled to him and that he had accepted him as a dear brother in Christ. And what a splendid example this would have been at that time of the difference between the kingdom of this world where slaves were regarded as subhuman and the kingdom of God where slaves were accepted as equal brothers in Christ. Very quickly there is an interesting postscript to this. Ignatius was a Christian martyr and in his writings dated about 50 years later, so you're talking around 110, 112 AD, a man named Onesimus was appointed Bishop of Ephesus. Now, Onesimus is an extremely unusual name. So could it possibly be that it was the same person who'd once been a runaway slave? Now at the end of the letter to the Romans and Colossians in particular, Paul mentions a whole string of the names of people he felt deserved a mention for one reason or another. Now we've only got information on a few of them, so we're actually going to focus on six of those people. And the first one we're going to have a quick look at is Phoebe. So Romans 16 verses 1 to 2, tells us there about her. In those verses, Paul sent greetings, in fact, in the whole of Romans 16, he sent greetings to actually 26 people. 
26 people by name. But before going on to list them, he commended a Roman, he commended to the Roman church, I should say, a woman called Phoebe. Now, Phoebe lived in Cancrea, which, as we've mentioned already, was the port city which served Corinth. And what we have to remember is that Paul wrote this letter to the believers in Rome while he was in Corinth. Verse 22 actually tells us it was Tertius who acted as his scribe on this occasion. Tertius wrote it down. Well, it seems that Phoebe was entrusted with taking the letter to Rome, which is presumably why Paul mentioned her first in the list, asking the believers, and I quote from verse 2, to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you. Phoebe's responsible work in the church at Corinth seems to have impressed Paul. He calls her, in verse 1, and I quote, a deaconess. Now, deaconess is an alternative rendering of the Greek word translated servant. And her ministry in that role would have focused on helping the poorer and weaker members of the Christian community and assisting the young women. Her service to the believers had become highly valued, as he says in verse 2, and I quote, she has been a great help to many people, including me. Now that help for Paul is thought to have possibly included financial support. And Phoebe is a challenge to us, isn't she, to, that we take our responsibilities in, the, in church life seriously. And the example of Phoebe shows that women were involved in very important ways across the early church. And interestingly, Paul greeted a number of women in this section of the letter. He described six of them, Priscilla, Mary, Junius, Tryphena, Tryphosa and Persis as fellow workers or made reference to their hard work in the church and for the Lord. That's verses 3, 6 and 12. You'll find those ladies mentioned. But apart from Priscilla and Aquila and Phoebe, little is known about the others listed here, which doesn't mean to say, and this is important to realise, that they weren't important people in the church. Like most of us, what they did in the service of the Lord may not have been widely known, but most importantly, it was known to God. So Phoebe is the first of our six. The second is Tychicus, who we've already mentioned this evening. And for him, we need to turn over to Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 to 8. You remember, he's the one who went to Colossae with Onesimus taking the letter to the Colossians. Now, Tychicus was a believer from Asia, we learn from Acts chapter 20, verse 4, and he actually probably came from Ephesus. And Paul uses three lovely phrases to describe him. The first is a dear brother. The second is a faithful minister. 
And the third is a fellow servant, a dear brother, because he was willing to stay with Paul when Paul was under house arrest in Rome. Tychicus could have just left Paul to get on with it, but he didn't. He saw that Paul was in need and he was determined to do what he could to support him, which challenges us all, doesn't it, to stand by people when they're in need rather than to just stand by. Faithful minister. He ministered to Paul and he ministered for Paul, carrying out various jobs and duties on his behalf. One example of which was delivering the very letter that mentions him. So therefore Paul must have been confident that he could be relied upon. He was trustworthy, he was dependable and he'd get the job done. Paul entrusted Tychicus to give a report to the Colossians, not just take the letter, but to give a report to the Colossians about his current situation. You see that in verse 7. He was more than just a dear brother. Tychicus was Paul's personal representative to the Colossians and, we see, to the Ephesians. As you, if you look in Ephesians 6, 21 to 22, which of course was his home city. Tychicus is an example of maturity and I think he challenges us all to examine our own level of maturity in God. Are we trustworthy? Are we reliable? Are we dependable? Can we be entrusted with a job without having to be chased about it all the time? They're marks of maturity and Tychicus showed them in his life. He was a faithful minister. And then the third one was a fellow servant. Tychicus was not an apostle himself, but he was a co-worker with Paul. And later, Tychicus was sent to Crete. We read that in Titus chapter 3, verse 12. And then on to Ephesus, which we read in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 12. I think Paul must have really rejoiced to have this dear brother that he could send to these places in confidence, knowing that he could be trusted to do whatever Paul asked him to. And this can't have been easy for Tychicus. We have to remember this. It can't have been easy to be associated with Paul because Paul had many enemies. And so if you were a friend of Paul, you had a whole package of enemies straight away. And that was the case with Tychicus. But Tychicus chose the right way rather than the easy way, even though it meant living in a prison situation. An all-round splendid chap and an example to us all of maturity in God. The third person is Aristarchus. And we read about him also in Colossians 4, but down in verses 10 to 11. Aristarchus was a Jew who had become a believer. He was from Thessalonica. If you look back in Acts chapter 20 and verse 4, you will see that there. And he became one of Paul's travelling companions. Now Aristarchus is somebody we 
kind of read about but don't remember. Because there are at least twice, two occasions in Paul's life that you're, you're all very, very well aware of where he was with Paul and must have feared for his life. The first one was actually in Ephesus during the riot led by Demetrius, the silversmith, if you remember all about how Paul was destroying their trade uh, because people were turning away from worshipping Artemis or Diana at the Ephesians and their trade had hit rock bottom and Demetrius leaves this riot. And Aristarchus gets caught up in that with Gaius. They're both seized by the angry mob because they can't find Paul, so they take it out on Aristarchus and Gaius. And they drag them into the amphitheatre. Remember all the hysterical scenes that were going on about this? And really, Aristarchus and Gaius must have thought they were about to be lynched. That was the situation. So that was the first occasion. If you want to know how that ends, you'll have to look back in Acts 19, 23 to 41. And secondly, he was on the ship. Aristarchus was on the ship with Paul and Luke sailing to Rome on the ship that was wrecked off the coast of Malta. Acts 21, uh, 27, I should say, 1 to 44. And Aristarchus accompanied Paul all the way to Rome and lived voluntarily with him during his time of house arrest. That's why in verse 10... Paul calls him, and I quote, my fellow prisoner. My fellow prisoner. So that's Aristarchus. Had quite a a whirlwind experience being with Paul, didn't he? When you think about it. But he was faithful and he remained with Paul. He accompanied him. The fourth one that we're looking at briefly is Epaphras. You read about him in verses 12 to 13. Epaphras was probably converted in Ephesus while Paul was there. And from there he returned home to Colossae, which is where he came from, and he preached the gospel there. And he founded the church in Colossae. So you see, you can get rid of that myth that Paul founded all the churches that he wrote letters to. He didn't. The church at Colossae was founded by Epaphras. And he may also, looking at verse 13, have founded the churches at Laodicea and Hierapolis. We mustn't fall into the trap of thinking that because there's no letter written, the other churches didn't exist. (laughs) They did. In fact, most of the letters would have been passed round from church to church. But they were addressed to a particular church because Paul, as you will remember from the study when we tackled why Paul wrote these letters, there was a situation or something there that needed addressing. Epaphras helped to keep the church together in the difficult times that they were experiencing in Colossae. Yes, so... What part Philemon played in that, we really don't know. And Epaphras cemented people together. He held the church together. He cemented them together. And the challenge to us is, 
Am I mortar or am I dynamite? In other words, do I cement people together or do I split things apart? In every church I've been in, there's examples of both. Now, as we mentioned earlier, Epaphras went to Rome to report to Paul in Rome about heresy in the Colossian church, which is why Paul wrote that letter that was delivered by Tychicus, along with the returning Onesimus with the letter to Philemon. That's how it all came about. Epaphras was a team player. He was not just a, quote, servant, as is the word used in chapter 4 of Colossians, verse 12, but also, if you go back to the beginning of Colossians, the first chapter in verse 7, he's referred to there as a fellow servant. A fellow servant. Epaphras, then, was a team player. Keen that people should pull together in the same direction for the sake of the gospel rather than having their own personal agendas like a lot of people did in the, apparently in the church at Colossae which resulted in the church being pulled apart. Mortar or dynamite? Epaphras was mortar. And one of the reasons his ministry was so successful was his prayer life. His prayer life even had an impact on Paul. If you look in verse 12, where he says, quote, He is always wrestling in prayer for you. From which we can deduce that he prayed constantly. There's the word always. That he prayed fervently. There's the word wrestling. Wrestling, same word, means agonising. He took his prayer serious. This was serious business he was about. He prayed Personally, in other words, he prayed for you, says Paul there. And he prayed definitely. Verse 13 tells us this. He prayed definitely. He knew what he was praying for. I quote, he was praying that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. That is that they would stand firm in resisting the false teachings of the Gnostics and those like them that was happening in the church and splitting it apart and become mature and confident in God as they grew in their understanding of him and his ways. Epaphras had a real prayer ministry and that is just as much needed today in the church, is it not, as it was then. And then we move on to number five in our list and that's Demas. Colossians 4 and verse 14. Demas is mentioned three times in Paul's letters. He's actually mentioned in the letter to Philemon in verse 24 and he's referred there to as my fellow labourer along with Mark, Aristarchus, who we mentioned already, and Luke. But here in verse 14, just Demas is mentioned and we will learn what became of him. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. 2 Timothy 4 verse 10 we read and I quote, For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He's deserted me because he loved 
this world. So obviously between writing to the Colossians and writing his last letter to Timothy, to Timothy was the last of his letters, something had happened in the life of Demas. So we have the sadness of a man who strayed from God's ways and fell into the ways of the world. And really the application for that for us is just beware. Beware. How much do the priorities of the world influence me? Is a challenging question to ask ourselves. And finally, we come back to Archippus. Verse 17 of Colossians 4. Archippus, Paul describes as, quote, a fellow soldier in Philemon, verse 2. As we said then, he's possibly the son of Philemon, as he's mentioned with him, and maybe even the pastor of the church at Colossae. And Archippus, or Archippus, seems to have become discouraged in the work. And this could be due to all these problems with these false teachers that kept arriving. And Paul reminds Archippus that his ministry was a gift from God and that he must persevere with it implying that God would help him to do so. And as we conclude, the situation with Archippus serves to remind us, does it not, how much we need to pray for our leaders. Our leaders get discouraged, they're human beings. We need to pray for them like Archippus. Perhaps we too, in fact I'm sure we all do, get discouraged in the work that God has given to do. There's frustration, there's exhaustion, there's not feeling able to cope. There are other issues maybe. But we need to just go away encouraged in the fact that the God who's entrusted that gift to us in the first place will empower us to see it through to the end. Amen.